Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, Facebook's terrible month, week, year, and what it means for journalism and for the fight against disinformation. I'm thrilled to be joined today by Matthew Ingram, who is CGR's chief digital writer and all and the chronicler of our all of our Facebook coverage. Hello, Matthew. Hi. And by Renee DiResta, who's um, a writer and a contributor to Wired and The Atlantic and the technical research manager at the Stanford Internet Observatory. Hi, Renee. Hi, happy to be here. Thank you. Let me start, uh, Matthew, with you. So we've just been through this enormous dump of documents and internal communications and other stuff um, from Facebook, a lot of which came via this whistleblower, Francis Haugen. Uh, it began with a series of stories in the Wall Street Journal and then became this big collaborative journalism project. And you know, frankly, in the last week or so, I've had trouble sort of figuring out what the, the stories have been sort of overlapping in my mind. Um, and I'm really curious, sort of like throughout all of this recent weeks, what you've learned, if anything, that sort of fundamentally changed your thinking about how Facebook works and why um, why we should be concerned about it, or whether it was just reinforcing what you already knew. Yeah, I wouldn't say anything came up that dramatically changed how I think of it about any of this, it, it was more kind of confirmation and examples of things that I had already been aware of. Um, so more kind of concrete, uh, for example, research from uh, inside Facebook done by Facebook researchers that sort of talked about things that um, I'd been aware of or that people have been concerned about more information about that and more kind of evidence of that. And, and was it stuff that you actually knew um, from a data perspective or that you just intuited based on what you know about Facebook and it was sort of your gut and this was something that sort of backed up your gut? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it was more, I would say, data um, that kind of backed up existing impressions about Facebook. Um, yeah. and, and things that had already kind of been written about. Yeah. I mean, my, my takeaway was, uh, I mean, I think the value to me was just seeing, seeing the internal discussions about stuff that a lot of us on the outside have been complaining about. Mm -hmm. um, and it all sort of added up to, yeah, they were much more aware of a lot of these things, whether the damage to individual users, the damage to the information ecosystem, um, then then I guess I, I, I guess I didn't realize the extent that with just was an active conversation there. And then just this sort of sense that, that they were just going to let it slide um, and, and were willing to just, you know, take the knocks for it. Yeah. I would say that's, that's one of my big impressions as well is just, you know, that it, over and over, it kind of seems as though you can picture researchers inside Facebook, jumping up and down and waving and saying, look at this over here, it's bad. And we're doing these things and we're concerned about it. And people, you know, having real ethical um, problems with what they were doing and what the company they worked for was doing. And then Facebook responding basically 
you know, that's too bad, but um, let's move on because we're, you know, printing money in the basement as one Facebooker supposedly uh, posted. So Renee, the sort of the same question to you, I mean, we're, we'll get to in a second, the kind of like questions about what do you do with this kind of information when you have it and how should, how should news media approach it? Because I mean, in a way I sort of had a sense this week that Facebook had sort of become like Trump. I mean, the, the, the stuff just doesn't stick. I mean, you could almost, people were, there's all kinds of horrible findings that were emerging and, it, it all seemed to sort of like just go into one sort of mass of, yeah, well, whatever, we knew they were bad anyway. Um, what was your take of, of on the substance of what people were reporting? Well, as Matthew notes, there had been a lot of speculation on some of these topics. There had been a lot of, uh, there had been some prior leaks on some of these topics. You know, the Wall Street Journal had um, written about, for example, leaked documents um, describing the dynamics of radicalization and the recommendation engine um, maybe a year or two ago, maybe late 2019, early 2020 timeframe. And so some of the, some of the dynamics were known, I think from a media, from a, from a media front, um, as you know, Matthew had a PC he, he published in CJR um, around the media aspect of the Facebook leaks, which is just that it becomes a, overwhelming barrage of so much stuff. Um, and I think that it became really hard to follow along. I think that that's one of the challenges in the age of the internet and how we consume information today. There's just such a glut. And so people will see perhaps, you know, it's, it's actually possibly easier for those who actually receive a physical paper and sit at their table and read it maybe to, to, to feel that they have some, that they've learned something new or have some clarity. I know for me, even though I work on these things, I was trying to follow along with the meta threads where various mm -hmm. researchers and journalists were aggregating the stories and then trying to kind of piece, you know, piece together what had come out and just found the entire experience actually uh, overwhelming, given that I also had other things I had to be doing. Ironic that you used the word meta thread. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, and now, and now we've got that. Now we've got a, uh, you know, a new logo and a flying koi to talk about. So, yeah. So. Yeah, so let's talk about this. By the way, have you, Renee, have you, I mean, I'm sort of curious about the, the how the whistleblower in this case sort of thought through how to, how to roll this out. And we actually had a sort of a interesting long discussion in the CJR story meeting about this, but because what this point that you just made about like, yeah, it just seemed like a barrage and it was hard for people to process. And even you who's, who is, you know, probably knows more about this stuff than anybody had to like spend some time just parsing through it and making, you know, trying to tank, you know, pull one string away from the other. Have you had any conversations with her, with her or anybody from her team about what, what they, what they were trying to do or what they hoped would happen? I'm just curious. Well, the conversations have been mostly around, um, as you've seen perhaps in a few people, um, Alex Stamos is quoted in Matthew's yeah. piece around the rollout. And then, um, there's a blog called Tech Policy Press, and uh, UW researcher Joe Bach-Coleman wrote a really great op-ed from a, um, a researcher point of view in there, arguing that academics have been to some extent kind of left out of the dumps. Those of us who worked on some of these areas for a very long time, like me, you know, commenting publicly on the recommendation engine starting back in 2015, 2016, and actually I was having conversations with, with members of Facebook's team about those topics at the time too, 
And some of the methodology that Brandy Zadrozny highlighted in the Carol's story, um, that, that story of the radicalization of this fake account into QAnon in two days, you know, I, I had I had had almost the same experience with an account that was um, primarily observing anti-vaccine mm. dynamics mm. being quickly pushed into Pizzagate and then QAnon over a period of about a year. And talking about that with people inside the company back when it was happening and hearing like, oh, you know, th- these are just anecdotes and, you know, that's not really what happens. And of course, there are people internally who, you know, who look at these things and, and that's not what they're seeing. And then, you know, you come to find out that, well, here's a story and, 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 and maybe in fact, um, that wasn't exactly the most, uh, you know, accurate or honest representation of things. So for me, I, I was given some of the documents um, on the topic of the recommendation engine to look at. And I am interested in the, you know, the granularity. And I think this is where mm-hmm. the researchers and academics who are looking for this, we all know the broad strokes. What we want to get at is more the methodology that the researchers internally were using, right? How did mm-hmm. they think about these things? What is their understanding? Would, are they measuring or using the same type of methodologies that outside network scientists would use to, um, to, to try to understand these dynamics a little bit better? And so one of the conversations now is how do we create a way to make this extremely interesting data set available to researchers um, with appropriate privacy protections, with appropriate redactions, mm-hmm. uh, that's a that's a real challenge. You know, the material here is is PDFs of um, photographs. You know, so there's a couple layers of mm-hmm. work that have to be done both to make it searchable, make it useful for people, um, and also to protect the privacy of the lower level employees and data scientists who are in there. There's a real interesting ethical question around what level of employees should be redacted in these documents, you know, should mm-hmm. upper management have their comments be public because they ultimately were the ones who either decided to act on or ignore um, some of the some of the findings of their own research team. And so there's some interesting questions there related to above what threshold, you know, do we do we think about how to how to handle the redaction? How do we do this ethically? Yeah. Yeah. I mean you brought up the fact that they were photographs. Did you see that one where you could see there, there's one of them that I saw that you could see uh, Frances Haugen in the reflection. No, um, I didn't see that. You can see her. It, you see the document, but then you see a reflection from the document, to, and you can see her holding her phone, which is just fascinating. But do you think that this, once we get the redaction thing figured out, which I understand is no small feat, but are you in favor of just a uh, complete data dump open where anybody in the, in the public could see all this to all these documents? You know, at this point, we we live in, (laughs) we live in interesting times when, um, you know, the idea that we're going to, that, that things like this will not leak out to the public is, is in my opinion, unrealistic. Um, So is there a way to do it in the most, um, again, privacy preserving, um, create an archive where the appropriate redactions are done. There are also interesting dynamics, adversarial dynamics, where you want to have uh, some sort of reputable host, right? So we've we've all seen or read about um, massive leaks in which fake information is inserted into leaks, for yeah. example, into, into vast troves of leaked documents. Uh, and then, and then a, um, you know, a fake account becomes the discoverer of this um, this purported finding. And then, you know, even if it's exposed as a hoax or false somewhere on the internet, there are going to be people who continue to believe it. And so again, just having kind of a reputable authoritative source, like a library, a university library, for example, um, would be an excellent way to create a, 
uh, you know, a, a version where people who are interested in this topic and the public does have an interest and in my opinion, a right to know also, because, you know, we all live in a society that's impacted by the dynamics on display here. So the idea that the public should be only have access to it mediated by, um, you know, by reporter or our uh, academic interpretations, I would argue is, um, is, is just not, you know, it's, it's not reasonable. It's not fair. I think there are certain data sets, you know, I have a, maybe a perspective on this. Um, I led one of the Senate Intelligence Committee research teams on the Russia data set in um, that the platforms turned over, after, you know, the interference data set from the 2016 election. Mm-hmm. And some aspects of that data set were released to the public. The ads, for example, um, were released to the public by the House Intelligence Committee in a redacted capacity. Um, that's a very, very small subset of the hundreds of thousands of of posts that were in the data set, but there were again real ethical concerns around how to release that data set because it contained the images of many, many people, um, ordinary Americans who had just kind of posted their photographs to Tumblr and then they mm-hmm. were unwittingly and you know through no fault of their own incorporated into a state-sponsored you know trolling and influence operation. And then the question became, you know, where what should the public have access to? What should the public have visibility into? Mm-hmm. How can we possibly redact <laughs> this content and make it searchable? Um, and so a lot of it was just never released except um, through information filtered by, um, you know, by, by folks like like my team, right? The work that we did, the work that, that Graphica and, uh, and Oxford's teams did. So there was academic interpretation. Then the Senate put out its own reports. And then, of course, the media covered some of these topics and some of the memes and things leaked. But the, you know, the kind of full perspective is still um, limited. And, you know, I, I think we do need to have a, a framework for helping the public understand these things and having visibility into primary sources is is really important, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and in, I mean, it is a lot more complicated once you sort of start thinking through it. And I mean, we are helped, though, in this case, as opposed to sort of the reality winner case, for example, that the whistleblower is fully public. That there, you know, there's no, there's no need for media to worry about um, disclosing who she is. Although I assume that there's a lot of data, a lot of documents in there that come from other Facebook people who would be at risk of losing their jobs, right? I don't even know that it's losing their job so much as, um, if you think about the GRU hacks, right? The um, the hack of the the Clinton um, Clinton campaign emails, yeah. for example. You know, that, that was all made public, including people's phone numbers and, you know, and those people became the subject of, um, you know, just because they happened to have at one time sent an email mm-hmm. or happened to have had their, you know, their email included, even if it was the most passing kind of conversation, um, they became the subject of, you know, conspiracy theorists really kind of digging through their lives, trying to yeah. find secret connections that had not yet been exposed. With something like this, you have employees of a company who are simply doing their jobs they're reporting, you know, they're reporting accurate findings. They're reporting findings that where they're, you, you know, you see them advocating for change within the company. And so I don't think that the uh, that the, the cost of, of doing that work and, and participating in that research um, should be becoming the subject of, a, you know, of a, of a group of people who get very, very angry, particularly in at the employees who are commenting on uh, political or mm-hmm. um you know, partisan related things where, 
there's going to be, you know, outrage at them personally because their findings are going to be potentially interpreted as some form of, um, you know, advocacy for censorship, right? And so that's where I think the privacy protection is very, very important. Again, with recognition that there is value to discussing, particularly above a certain, you know, a certain managerial threshold, decisions that were made and accountability that should, you know, how that, either what accountability potential there is, or how to think about people having that kind of power going forward. Yeah. Yeah. So interesting. Uh, Matthew, so put on your media critic hat, which you wear often. <laughs> um, um, I mean, you know, in a way that the the news outlets who got this stuff, especially in this big last dump, I mean, did, they didn't, one, they don't have Renee's um, expertise, but also they didn't have time. I mean, they just got this stuff and then it's like, mm-hmm. what are we going to do with it? And um, um, how should we be think? well, how do you think, how do you think about first off this, this problem of like all these stories seem to kind of merge together and it all seems to be making the same point over and over again. I mean, Renee's solution is, you know, you really get granular and you go and get the details and that will really, that makes a difference. But how, what do you think that journalists need to do to make these stories land with the public, maybe in a way that they haven't done yet? Well, I think, unfortunately, the way that it was released, that these documents were released, kind of exacerbated, like I said in the in the newsletter I wrote about it, exacerbated sort of already existing problems with this kind of story. It's, it's you know, Facebook is a massive company. Um, it, it controls literally unbelievably vast amounts of content. Um, there are good people and bad people who work at Facebook. And so it, but it's easy when you have a trove of documents to just kind of focus on those without putting them into context. And I think in some cases, the sort of rush to, to get them a story into print or up online as quickly as possible, you know, before someone else, before a competitor, it, it doesn't, it doesn't always result in the, in the best, you know, quality story. So you've got um, for example, stories about how the uh, anger emoji was worth five times alike, um, and and either did some of these didn't mention or mentioned very far down that that all of the reaction emojis were weighted five times alike, not just the anger one. So yeah. I think it's easy to get um, it's it, it's like any complex you know story that's been going on. For years, you you try to summarize things that are important, and and if you're trying too quickly, and maybe you haven't spent the time on the background, you're going to wind up um, maybe misrepresenting how those things came to occur. So what do we what do we do with this problem? Like you know, we have people have deadlines. It's a competitive story. There's a ton of information that they have to sort through. Some of them are used to looking at this kind of. Um, these kind of this kind of data some of them aren't like what what do we how do we help people as they try to sort of navigate this because it's probably not going to be the last yeah i think one thing i mean john also uh, wrote about this has written about this a couple of times um consortiums like um the uh if yeah federation of 
journalists. Yeah, I think the way that they kind of organize um, large information uh, releases and and sort of structure how those things get parceled out and how they get reported is, I think they've done a good job with a lot of really, really complex stories. It's not an easy thing to do. Um, you know, we've seen any number of examples um, like the Snowden leaks and so on, even the, the GRU ones that Renee mentioned where arguably those could have been handled better. Um, I think if you, if you can reduce duplication, you, you not only wind up getting what I think are better stories, but you wind up not overwhelming people. I have last count of the number of people who've told me, even journalists, not just normal people, who, who've said, I can't pay attention to this. I, I, I've literally, I, I don't understand any of it and there's too much. And so they just tune out and then no one, it, that doesn't you know help the situation at all. Yeah. Yeah. And we talked about how um, Facebook's response seems to be picking up. I mean, it seems to be borrowing some from tobacco companies, some from oil companies and the climate debate, which is like, yeah, this is super complicated and it's, you know, it's, it's controversial. And some people think one thing, some people think other. And, and there's this sort of like fog um, defense. Um, Renee, what do you think about this question of like, how to, given the practical realities of what deadline journalism is like, especially now when there's so much pressure to publish fast, um, you know, what, if you were advising reporters trying to make sense of this, how do, what, what do you tell them? It's interesting because this is, you know, I was thinking a little bit about my experience um, in 2018 when, you know, our team and Graphica's team, um, when we were going to put out these Russia reports and the, the Oxford team, um, we tried to figure out actually how we could even work with media because that there was, it turns out that there was no like media plan that was given to us, you know? <laughs> um, so this is sort of my first time all of a sudden with a, with a, you know, a, a big report that had a ton of stuff in it. And, and, you know, each of our reports was, was, uh, I think over a hundred pages. I think ours was close to 250. And so the question became, how do we even communicate with media and all of the reporters wanted to know like what was the best story what was the most important part what was the key takeaway and so i had very naively had this this idea that i could like apportion things out you okay. know <laughs> yeah. um and which i imagine That's is probably a good way to win friends that you learned right well no I, I really didn't know what was i supposed to do you know was, was everybody going to read 200 pages i assumed the answer to that was no and so I, there was an expectation that i was going to to translate it for them and i imagine with francis's document set you know with with over 1300 documents there's that question um recognizing that journalists are all competitive with each other and want the best story and in environments like this there's going to be a ton of stuff that's going to be written um i actually you know i i really in many ways prefer the um the kind of work that comes out occasionally that that connects the dots in a through line form. I read a really good one of those this morning on Lawfare, um, mm -hmm. in which uh, two researchers were trying to connect the documents back to um, speculation about certain topics and influence operations beginning back in you know in 2012, right? And and how uh, what we were seeing in the in the documents and in the kind of current news cycles traced things back. And I feel like things like that, when they get read are more important in shaping public perception than a snapshot of 
here is how the recommendation engine did this thing, you know, or here is how the, um, you know, the angry emoji is weighted five times, um, you know, more than a like or, or what have you. Um, those sorts of things, I think people need them contextualized in some way. And so I do really appreciate when they're written up in, in such a way as to create that long form or draw that through line by, particularly by reporters who've been on a beat for a long time. I just know that, you know, also, um, you know, as someone who writes that oftentimes, you know, the editors want something short and fast and, um, and snappy. And so the, in the, it's, it's, it's the incentive. I think Alex actually said this on Twitter um, of <laughs> optimizing for uh, engagement over understanding. Mm-hmm. And, and so that ironically is, you know, in, an, in a, in a media environment, you know, social media plus media in which attention, you know, getting attention requires somehow rising above a, a massive din uh, it is, you know, that, that competition to have the best story is exacerbated also by the effort to create something um, that sounds new. And I think that occasionally this leads to journalists writing stories that emphasize a facet of newness as opposed to a contextualization that explains why something has been societally impactful. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, and as a researcher who puts out reports where I would much prefer the work we do kind of contextualized in the latter um, you know, as here's how you should understand this latest finding in the context of our understanding of the world and, you know, the, the system that, that is shaping us. Um, instead, a lot of the time I'm like, okay, let me, how do I find something new here? Because that's what the reporter wants to hear about. And, it, and it's that tension, right? That tension of, uh, of engagement versus understanding that is just the kind of systematic issue that I think uh, plagues the information environment we're in today. Yeah. Um, I mean, what is what, what, one one kind of like soft indicator that I always use for these kind of stories is like, you know, how what is like when you when you go meet with people who aren't who aren't in this world, certainly who aren't researchers like you are, but even who don't even follow the tech industry that closely. Um, I mean, my perception is that the that the uh, Facebook is somehow in trouble and they seem to be kind of a bad player. That seems to have been have sort of seeped in broadly. But maybe I, maybe I'm still living in a bubble. What is your sense that of like how I mean it's almost like a political campaign that that has emerged here in the sense of like it's just about getting as many people as many eyeballs on this topic as we can. Um but what is your sense of how how sort of broadly what's ailing the company has seeped into people's. Yeah, that that's a great question. Actually, that's a through line question too. <laughs> so if you'll give me like a minute to, yeah. to kind of offer some history here. Um, you know, I was, I gave a talk at Google IO in early 2016, arguing that the recommendation engine was a disaster and that this was not unique to Facebook, but that this was kind of like um, just sort of writ large across Amazon, across Twitter, Google, Facebook, you know, you name it, the recommendation engines were a disaster and they were leading to some really bad consequences. And I kind of felt like chicken little, right? Because I was saying this as a person who was, I was, I did not work in the company. And so I was arguing this point, like, hey, through observation and like tiny experiments, this appears to be a really big problem. Um, around the same time, there were people like, you know, Tristan Harris and the various folks who kind of came together under the, the uh, Center for Humane Technology umbrella. And then there were a number of researchers, you know, Sophia Nobel and, and some other folks, um, Kathy O'Neill, who were um, writing books like um, Algorithms of Oppression and, and some of the other literature mm-hmm. that was coming out, arguing that 
again, maybe there were some, some real bad stuff that was happening that we didn't fully understand, but everybody was very disconnected. There was no real, mm-hmm. you know, you would get maybe some press coverage for your particular thing, but it, it actually wasn't until the Russia interference was found mm-hmm. that Congress started to pay attention. And that was when you started to see lawmakers ask for briefings. And so that was kind of how I originally got connected with, uh, you know, with Senator Warner staffers and and others to try to write those initial briefing documents saying like, here's how you should understand things. And I was writing, I still had these, these briefings. It was literally like social media 101. <laughs> like here is a promoted post. It looks like a post, but it's really an ad, you know, <laughs> and, and writing these like really, really basic things and, and just trying to convey an understanding of the tech. And now like jump forward now to 2021 and you see senators who five years later now are very prepared. They do understand there is massive public sentiment um, that, you know, where where the public quite clearly feels that social media companies um, have done bad things, need accountability, need regulation, need oversight, right? Oversight and accountability, transparency. Those are kind of the things that we hear over and over and over again. And it's a steady drumbeat now. Now, unfortunately, that means it's time for the very, very boring conversations, which is the how, right? The devil in the details work. People like Nate Persilli, who are actually introducing legislation that deals with the extremely, you know, um, tedious details that nobody wants to read about in an article around how exactly a transparency, you know, privacy protecting transparency and data sharing arrangement would actually look. So the sentiment is there over that period of time, public sentiment really shifted through these hearings, the work of investigative journalists, series of leaks, you know, ex-employees speaking out the movie, The Social Dilemma, even, you know, there were so many of these different things Mm. that shaped Mm. public perception. But now comes the point of, okay, so now what? So now what do we do with all of this? How do we make a change? How do we create oversight? And this is where the unfortunate reality of devil in the details is it means that you have lawmakers who still think of things in terms of the algorithm, you know, and, you know, and and so you try as a a researcher, as a policy person to, um, to unpack, to get into that minutiae. Well, there isn't any the algorithm, you know? <laughs> so it was a, which algorithm are we talking about here? Which feature? If we try to regulate at a feature level, I mean, that's really sort of a very, in my opinion, kind of silly thing to do because this is an arms race. And anytime there's a new feature or the rules of the game change, adversarial actors just shift their behavior. So, you know, this was like evidenced in the California bot law. Why are we regulating bots in 2018, 2019 when they were really most impactful in 2015, 2016? You know, and so these are the kinds of dynamics. Now we have to have these extremely nuanced details and frankly, for the average person, boring conversations about how to do this. And so in, in, in an interesting way, now that we've all been overwhelmed, now this is actually the time when we have to pay attention to those details because we don't want to create bad regulation or useless regulation. And so that, I think, is the, um, is the kind of phase of the conversation that we're moving into today. Yeah, that's not good for... Um, um people filing daily stories, Matthew, like, um, and I mean, not, not, I mean, what, what Renee said makes eminent sense, but it's, it's going to be hard for some people to resist sort of looking for something quicker. Um, where do you think the story goes now? Um, before, you know, while researchers and sort of longer form people work on these details, where do you think the story goes? I mean, I think it, to some extent, it just becomes part of the broader, story about what we're going to do about Facebook. So what is Congress doing? What is the FTC doing? Um, what is the SEC doing? And what is Europe doing? 
and how all those things kind of play into what Facebook or Meta winds up doing. You know, there 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 are um, there are lawsuits underway, there are investigations underway, and so you know it, it's hard mm-hmm. to say how many of those are going to turn into something or what the something is that they might turn into. But there's going to be fallout from this more than just you know nasty um, emails to Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah. And the final question for both of you, uh, and Matthew, you and I have talked a lot about this, but um, there seems to now be a lot of attention on Zuckerberg himself. You know, Kara Swisher is writing columns about how he should go, um, which, which is one of the reasons that the thinking goes that he created this holding company to try to like take some of that heat off. Um, But does it, does does the fundamental dynamic change much? Uh, I, I understand how, how he runs the place and how he's the biggest shareholder and all that, but um, does it, does it, is it resolved overnight or certainly, I mean, that's, even that's a stupid question, but what is it, how, how much is that even a critical part of the story or should it be right now? Like, does he stay? Does he go? Who comes in? Well, I honestly believe that that's a bit of a sideshow, to be honest. I mean, not just because he controls all the votes and and the board of directors and and so on, but um, but because fundamentally, what what is wrong with Facebook or the things that make it uh, uncomfortable and or bad are are baked in. They're not they're not just things that can be tweaked. It's they're they're aspects of how its business model and growth model impact people who use it and human nature. And those things are not things that that are going to change just because a different person is sitting in the CEO chair. Renee, I'm curious of what you think about that. I would, I would tend to agree. I, you know, I didn't really pay very much attention to the meta meta conversation. <laughs> um, I watched the video and then I just kind of went back to work. So, you know, I think it's, um, you didn't spend time making fun of it like we did. <laughs> I mean, you know, in the DMS, <laughs> um, sorry, I interrupted. So, so you don't, you don't put that, you don't spend that much time thinking about what, whether what's going to happen to Zuckerberg. Not to Zuckerberg personally, no. I, I'm interested in the in the problem at a at a system level. You know, what is, what are the partnerships that we put in place? We've got 2022 coming up. It's going to be a mess. It's going to be an absolute mess. You know, all the all the audits, all the the allegations, the allegations of fraud preemptively. You know, in the, the California recall, we had the um, the likely loser setting up a website arguing that the vote had been stolen prior to the election actually happening. You know, so we're and we're just really trying to keep our heads down and, and and think about what the next thing is. We're processing the information. You know, we're all trying to contextualize what's happened to try to think through what are the ways in which academics can get access to this data and again participate in the way that we're equipped to to help the public get access to the data to help media contextualize the data. Um, the the rebranding and all of that has been largely a sideshow. Hmm. Well. Renee, it's great to talk to you. I appreciate you appreciate you coming on. Yeah, thank you for Matthew, having me. Great to hear from you as well. You can read Matthew's um, coverage of all of this at CGR.org in the Media Today newsletter, and you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you both.